Keeping up with the research and then applying it to your clinical practice is hard. That's where we come in. I'm Sarah Cavallaro. And I'm Mim Rodder, and we are paediatric OTs who, through this Research and Reality podcast, aim to help you better examine the research and then interpret that into the practicalities of reality for the families you work with. Hello, Mim, and welcome. We're back looking at another article. I'm we actually are. starting to become becoming more confident in reading the articles with your help. Thank you very much. Like simply mm. having a structure to be able to go through the article in detail helps you break it down. I think sometimes when you read an article without making notes or without putting it into a structure, bits of it get lost or bits you don't really care about like I know for me when I'm looking clinically often I'll skip straight to the results what I'm finding in this process is is absolutely it's really helpful to go through all the other bits as well and we hope you're finding it helpful as well and we're hoping you're finding our hard work of going through yes yes useful and please let us know if it's been helpful we've got an email address and we've got a Facebook page so jump on and let us know if it's being helpful for you or if you've got suggestions for a different way for us to look at an article or something that you'd like us to look at in more detail let us know and and feel free to let us know if we've got anything wrong yes (laughs) absolutely (laughs) we are not claiming to be perfect in any way and we're going to get it wrong over and over again that's part of our learning and hopefully we're learning for you in terms of the fact that if we make the mistake then you don't have to (laughs) getting on with our article for today our article going with our feeding theme for this term mealtime behaviors of young children with sensory food aversions and it's an observational study it's from the Australian Occupational Therapy Journal and it's by Angela Caldwell and Elise Krauss mm. uh, and it was accepted into the Australian OT Journal on the 15th of April 2021. On the University of Pittsburgh website, it said that her primary area of expertise is paediatrics with an emphasis on health promotion during early childhood and that Angela is particularly interested in the development and implementation of interventions to reduce childhood health disparities. Elise has got a PhD in OT at the University of Pittsburgh. As we said, it's from the Australian Journal of Occupational Therapy and the impact factor is 1.86 is the number I got. And it's interesting. Again, I think it shows that research is great. It's from around the world. And so even though uh, the research is from the US, it has been published in the Australian mm, I think Journal. I think the Australian OT Journal has really good credibility you know a lot of people from around the world are, are looking to publish in the Australian OT Journal which is great for us as Aussies finding the actual clinical question we found a little bit more difficult but you go first Sarah this is straight out of the article it says the purpose of this paper is to examine the reliability of a novel coding scheme the BMCS, which is the Behavioural Mealtime Coding System, and identify associations among child acceptance of preferred and targeted foods, child food exploration, and caregiver use of strategies to manage child behaviour. So I guess my understanding is they're doing two things. Number one is they're looking at the behavioural mealtime coding system and trying to examine reliability of that be used, I guess, in further research and potentially clinical practice. And they're also using that as a tool 
to identify associations amongst acceptance of food, how much kids explored the food and mm. what strategies their caregivers used. Yep. Is that yeah. kind of your understanding yeah, of the two, Yeah, I think Mim? so as well because they, they mention, obviously this is a little bit more the background, but that potential risk of reduced nu- nutrition and they do use the words occupational dysfunction mm. at real times. Mm. not exactly sure what they mean by that, whether that's behaviours or... I guess, I mean, I guess my interpretation of occupational dysfunction is that something is happening during the mealtime. So the child's occupation is having a meal and something is happening during that mealtime to prevent full and or satisfactory participation in that occupation. Mm. So either the child is not satisfied by the participation in the mealtime or the parent is not satisfied with the child's participation in the mealtime. I guess that for me would be my in clinical practice definition of occupational dysfunction at yes. a mealtime. Either the yes. kid's not happy or the parent is not happy. The caregiver is not happy with what's going on at mealtimes. Mm. Simplifying the question is, what do kids with sensory food aversion actually do during mealtime? Yes. So because it's an observational study. Yes. And then how do their caregivers react? And yep. exactly as you said, that it seems to be looking at those observations, but then they couldn't really find mm. any coding systems that worked showing yep. those behaviours. Yep. So they wanted to create a new one that was fit for purpose, mm. the behavioural mealtime coding system. And so they wanted to test how reliable that was. If you observe well, you can then give better, more tailored strategies to kids and their parents. So yeah, you make those and I think observations absolutely. Yeah, and I think my understanding is a lot of these coding systems, coding assessments, are designed to be used for future research. So once you have a way to code occupational dysfunction, then you can measure it, and then yes. you can measure outcomes of interventions so sometimes these initial bits of research are not always clinically relevant for us because it's not a tool that we would use in everyday practice but it's a tool that will be used in the future to help us determine which feeding therapy interventions are effective and which are not because they're coded more accurately. Yeah what I actually really like about reading through these research papers as well is that they do all the hard work of yes. looking at all the other research. Yes, so, so you great. don't just get the gems from mm. what they're looking at. You're like, oh, yes, okay, oh, that's interesting that other researchers Fascinating. found that. Yeah. Just the structure of research that they, they always say what's been done in the past yeah. and then go on. So yeah. in the introduction, in that literature review sort of section, they report that 50% of children demonstrate selective eating behaviours. I suppose... I say that in a surprising way, but thinking about my kids, actually, that's not surprising. I think it is interesting that 58% outgrew these behaviours. So that's yep. still a significant number that didn't, yep. but that is still a significant number that, that did as well. Yep. And they were saying some of the literature reports and associations with that moderate to severe food selectivity in this early age obviously can cause conflict like parental conflict can cause reduced growth if they're not getting the nutrition that they need, anxiety, depression, and even attention deficits, as well as that stress at mealtimes. They particularly are talking about this age range because of the importance of such critical time for brain development. It was interesting. They mentioned some of the unhelpful strategies like 
coercion of, of threats mm. and force feeding and pressuring mm. kids to eat food as well. And that creates negative mealtime experiences. OTs who do feeding therapy and clinical practice talk about Ellen Satter's model of, mm. you know, her division of responsibility. In feeding therapy, one of the first things that a lot of therapists try and educate parents on is that a child is able to choose when and how much. So a parent chooses what time and what's on offer and the child is able to choose when and how much. So I guess for us, the fact that coercion and bribery are unhelpful strategies is probably not a surprising outcome of the literature, but I think it's great that they've summarised that so succinctly in the article. Yes, yeah, summarises things. So instead of having to read all those articles, you can go, okay, those things in the literature don't seem to work. And then they talk about some of the evidence-based strategies that to improve that variety without the coercion, repeated exposure to food, non-food-based positive reinforcement or praise. So it's not that you can't reward them. It's just that it's a non-food-based reward. That modelling of healthy eating behaviours and that structured distraction-free feeding environments as well. And Uh, I really really liked this. They had a nice little summary kind of sentence and it said, Mm. essentially... Caregivers should strive to maintain a responsive feeding environment that supports the child's hunger cues and ensures a pleasant and structured (laughs) feeding environment with few distractions. These environments tend to promote healthy eating behaviour and are inversely associated with selective eating in children. Now, the reason I have that tone in my voice is that, you know, I think it's virtually impossible, right, for any parent to create that sort of environment at every mealtime, you know, pleasant and structured and few distractions are probably not what I would be describing family meal times as especially in the early days exactly especially Uh when you have toddlers and babies how can we just move you in that general direction without it being perfect I always talk to parents about the 30% rule where we know that we only need to be a good enough parent 30% of the time in order for our children to thrive I don't know because this is not backed by research but I'm assuming the same thing applies to things like this if we can create them the majority or not even the majority 30% of our meal times with this beautiful environment that's mm. probably enough to get us over the line. Don't yes. quote me anybody on that <laughs> because that's just me off the top of my head. Um, but I'm just imagining, you know, if I was a parent and I had a child with severely restricted eating and somebody quoted me that sentence, yes. I would just feel so defeated. And mm. so I guess I'm just talking about how do we reframe that for families without discouraging them so encouraging those good strategies and discouraging the not so helpful strategies but at the same time not undermining them i think we could almost end the podcast there because i (laughs) think even in that intro like there was was so much to get out of it but there was but to get into the actual uh, nitty-gritty of this particular research so it was 21 children southwest pennsylvania us and they all had sensory food aversion so sfa so age between 18 to 60 months so that's 18 months to five years old yep and it involved their caregivers givers as well and again they were recruited using a convenient sample so it is a low number uh, but it is a start and so to be eligible, they had to refuse food based on sensory characteristics, so such yep. as uh, texture, colour, temperature, 
uh, refuse food when novel food was introduced. They had to eat preferred food without difficulty uh, and they had to be at risk for nutritional deficiencies or oral motor delay. So I, a lot of kids can tick some of those boxes in some ways. Mm. Little girls can say I only want pink foods or whatever yes. or they're like, oh, I don't like the look of that, that's up to you. Yes. Um, but they'll eat lollies till the cows come home. Mm. But the added thing is that they had to be at risk for nutritional deficiencies or oral motor delay. So it's not saying that we can't use those strategies for kids that don't show that more severe sensory food aversion. But again, I think sometimes we get too caught up in the variety that our children, I think I'm talking more personally, but our children eat when actually is it having a functional problem or is it just that you look on Instagram and see these amazing meals that apparently these families are cooking so yes yeah so I just thought that bit at the end nutritional deficiencies or oral motor delay yeah. was quite important as well yeah, so there were more boys than girls that they were mostly non-Hispanic white five had gastrointestinal issues one had a diagnosis of autism and one had a diagnosis of sensory processing disorder yes yeah uh, and three had actually had OT support for feeding and sensory processing in the past. Under participants and design, it says clinical confirmation of SFA was determined using structured mealtime observation and an in-depth caregiver interview. That assessment was done by the OTs. So eligible child participants met all four criteria as determined by an OT. So obviously an OT who's quite skilled in understanding nutritional deficiencies or oral motor delay because I'm thinking for myself I wouldn't be confident in analyzing a child's diet and knowing Mm. whether that child had a nutritional deficiency and it may be that they had a dietitian involved in the study and or a speechy when we talk about oral motor delay in one of our other articles that we discuss talks about an oral motor assessment done by a speech pathologist. I think it's interesting that they haven't gone into more detail about exactly what the criteria is for a nutritional deficiency or an oral motor delay. Yes, and they did, it was based on that initial interview as well. And so maybe it was through that interview that there was some evidence provided that they had been diagnosed. Like that's pure speculation, but rather than the OT actually analysing that, it could have been that they had received that diagnosis. Yes, it's Elise's PhD, potentially. It looks as though this is her PhD project, a larger pilot study done by her the year before. And so I wonder whether if we had gone back and looked at some of those other articles, whether we would have found more information there about which kids were included and why and some more details of the methods of that. Yes, exactly. So it ticks the ethics box. They received ethics approval through the University of Pittsburgh. And exactly as you say, it's an observational study, but it was re-looking at data collected from that larger pilot study. Yeah, it's a coding of an assessment. What they did was families videoed 10 typical meals over a two-week period and all up they coded 63 typical mealtime videos recorded by caregivers in the home environment. It's not really mentioned, but I imagine there were fairly specific guidelines for how families 
were allowed to video you know I think they set them up I think there was a little bit of a mention of how they set that like they set them up themselves and yes sorry they they showed them how to set them yes yes yeah and I imagine that they would have to have given the parents some coaching around where to place the video because you you know you want to be able to see all of the things that you're trying to code the behavioral mealtime coding system really interesting so they they're coding the mealtime duration and it says it begins when the child is seated at the table or is provided with food and ends when the child walks away from the food or stops participating they're coding child food acceptance so that's whether they bite the preferred food bite the targeted food or bite other food and the classification of a bite is that they take it into their mouth and they don't spit it out. Mm. Child food exploration is coded by either touching the food with their hand or their finger, food play where they interact with their food or licking the item without consumption. And then the caregiver strategy use is classified as labelled praise For example, you did a great job trying a bite of broccoli or unlabeled praise, which is non-specific praise, where you might say, good job, buddy. Generic positive reinforcement, where you might say, "Mm, yummy. A direct command, a threat, a bribe, or feeding the child. So when the parent actually puts the food in the child's mouth, either using their hand or using a fork or a spoon. So it's quite nice to be able to see the coding of that. And that's quite nicely listed in the article, which I love because I love to see the practical application of that. And to be able to talk about those specifics with parents yes is really nice yes exactly and I think I'll just take a step back with that child food acceptance because they looked at preferred food and so preferred food was eaten more than equal or more to the 90 percent of the time when they offered yep. it the targeted food was obviously the foods that the parents said yep I want them to be able to eat more of this and there was other foods and that's fine and they developed that list with the parents before the videos were made a little bit of attention but that idea that Children don't have to eat every single food that they're presented no. with. They can have some preferred food. You can target certain foods, but other there's foods that just fit into the other yeah, category. Absolutely. And that's okay. That's right. Yep, absolutely. And we talked about this, but that secondary goal of determining interrelated reliability of the system that was achieved by one trained graduate research assistant coded all 63 videos and then a yep. second trained graduate research assistant coded one third so 21 mm-hmm. of the videos to try and look at that inter-rater yep. reliability yeah that's great in terms of credibility of the data before we talk about the results is that there's a low sample size so we know that there's only that there was not a huge amount of diversity mm-hmm. in terms of income race and cultural values amongst that group of families that were analyzed yeah and they also acknowledge that the children have been exposed in the past to some of those targeted foods. Yes. So with one of the things from the literature being continued exposure, you can't really work out where in that time frame of exposure that that they're at. You might have got them at that tipping point and gone, oh, they've been exposed enough that they actually are accepting it or actually they've only been exposed a few times so they're not really accepting it. But at the same time, these are foods that the parents identified as targeted. Mm. So you would think they would have been exposed to them a number of times. And they also acknowledged that some of the children in the study had received feeding therapy. Mm. And so 
that would have impacted things. Absolutely. And I think it would have impacted potentially maybe the way that parents were interacting based on the advice they've been given potentially in feeding therapy. Yes. And I think it can be hard when someone is watching or you being, you're being filmed or recorded on a oh, podcast. Absolutely. <laughs> if my feeding therapist had told me not to bribe my kids and then I was videoing myself, I would make sure that I yes. was not bribing my kids in that mealtime, right? Yes, exactly. You know, like you're going to save it for breakfast when you're not being filmed or, you know, whatever it is. Yeah, exactly. yeah, yeah. So yeah. you might not act completely normal, but because they did 10 sessions, Yes, so they do acknowledge yeah. only some only recorded eight. Maybe that does become a little bit less intrusive. I think but so. They acknowledge that limitation. Yeah, and I think this was an interesting one that I hadn't thought of. But they acknowledge themselves. They also state it might be helpful to look at the child's mood and their acceptance of targeted foods, which yes. they weren't able to sort of judge mood. But again, thinking about myself. Yeah, absolutely. Your kids. Children. Yeah, yeah, um, that's right. When everybody's in a cranky mood. Yeah, thinking about a therapy session that offering you go a new meal. Yeah. yeah. Yes, sometimes yes. a kid comes into therapy and you're like, okay, yeah, we'll not be doing this. that today. <laughs> yeah, let's just change tack completely. That's right. So results. Yes. So the assessment tool demonstrated excellent inter-rater reliability. Child bites of targeted foods were associated with mealtime duration and events of the child licking the food. The longer the mealtime, the more likely it was that the child would take a bite of the targeted food mm. and the more often the child licked the targeted food the more often they were they would take a bite of that yes so again the correlation yes it was a correlation that's right yeah interestingly though when we talk about mealtime duration none of them were overly long like I've had oh. families in clinic tell me that dinner lasts an hour, you know, there's all sorts of horror stories. The average mealtime duration was actually 17 and a half minutes and it ranged from eight to 26 yes. minutes. Um, and, you know, that seems reasonable to me in terms of what our family's mealtimes, how long they take. Interestingly, the caregiver use of threats was associated with the child age and negatively associated with caregiver education level. So oh. it looks as though the older the child was, the more caregivers used threats as a strategy. And also the more education they had, the less threats they used as a strategy at mealtimes. So they also talked about increasing mealtime. You can increase mealtime by embedding positive activities just to encourage that food exploration. And that may actually improve the acceptance of the healthy targeted foods. And they do say future research is needed to better understand the complex relationship among caregiver strategy use, mealtime duration and child mealtime behaviour. Yeah. So I think the one, exactly as you were saying, it was the mealtime duration, even though that was only a very small line, like I do mm. appreciate all the other things they coded mm. for, a very small line that was reported in it. Yes. I actually think it was quite interesting because they were saying in the literature that children with sensory food aversions often will either have notably shorter or notably longer. Yes, mealtime duration. Yeah, yeah, they go well below or well above the average mealtime duration. Oh, the average mealtime duration is, yes, eight, 19 to 26 minutes. 
in the um, literature yeah in the literature yes and I'm like oh that's pretty fast 19 minutes being the lower end of the average so just to report some of the details of the results yep so from that food acceptance so children took an on average 26 bites of food uh, and 18.2 on average of those bites were preferred and 1.5 of those bites uh, were targeted foods yep food exploration children use touching as the most common way of exploring the food and actually very few of them seem to show throwing or spitting of the food Mm. and direct commands were the most common form of caregiver strategy followed by generic positive reinforcement so just like yum or unlabeled mm. praise like good job that you you talked about some of those yeah uh, and with labeled praise being the least common and again I just think <laughs> I, it, it is hard sometimes in the in the middle of things to be able to say good job doing this yeah uh, bribes were more frequent than threats and caregivers were observed to feed their child putting food in their mouth 3.5 times per meal on average yeah I mean to me seems fairly reasonable given the age of the child often when kids are fatigued at the end of the day parents often report having to help their child eat physically eat either putting the food on their fork or helping them bring the fork to their mouth more often just due to kids being tired at the end of the day so then the application to the clinical practice. I'll start here because my first instinct with the study was like from a therapist's point of view, like, oh, this is a lot of work for, well, for parents and therapists. I was like, should I be getting families to video their mealtimes and analysing them this carefully? Am I not being thorough enough? But by the end, I realised that that's not what the study was trying to do. No. It was about doing the legwork for us to be able to come up with those coding systems so that we can then teach the home messages. We can do that parent coaching, uh, as you said. Even just that simple thing of just asking parents about how long their meal times last. Yes. And finding ways, if they're extremely long, finding ways to maybe make them shorter so less stressful. Yes. Or finding, in this case, the meal times were quite short so finding ways to maybe extend them in more of that exploration of the food we always want flexibility that every parent every child every family is different but sometimes parents do like something to latch on to and so even just saying if you're aiming for 20 to 25 minutes of a meal time yeah that's what that's what's good if it goes a bit shorter Sometimes that's fine. If yep. It goes a bit longer, that's fine. But that's yep. what you're looking for. Yeah. They want, parents want numbers. They want some take-homes that can then help structure their routines. So if you don't know how long a routine is supposed to be, you're not able to really put that into the structure. And we know from the background research that having a structured mealtime environment is correlated with less sensory feeding aversions than having less structure. Yes. So I think that's a good point, Mim. You made a comment about playing with their food. Yeah, it's interesting. Some of the feeding therapists that I've worked with, and again, you know, I will just mention I'm not a feeding therapist. I have done little bits of feeding therapy over the years, but I'm definitely not an expert. But I know some of the expert feeding therapists that I have worked with talk about exploring non-preferred foods outside of mealtimes because sometimes some families don't want 
to encourage kind of playing with your food Mm. at the dinner table. You know, that's kind of one of those old fashioned rules that we tend to come with, maybe some cultural values that we've been brought up with. And so some feeding therapists that I've worked with recommend exploring non-preferred foods in a fun way outside of mealtimes. So not at the dinner table and not at a mealtime. And then you can then transition to presenting those as non-preferred foods as one of the options at mealtime along with the preferred food. And so they talk about maybe doing it outside as part of messy play rather than including that at the mealtime. So the other thing that uh, I found quite helpful from the results is, again, personally, and also for parents that I work with, a bit of a guilt relief when they talked about the number of bites of targeted targeted foods so the foods that they don't like was not actually significantly correlated with the number of total bites so if you are looking at weight loss or gain primarily uh, then you can it's okay to look at those preferred foods and those neutral foods and again I know some of the preferred foods are not healthy options and so take that into consideration and they do talk about variety is important at this age as you can establish those preferences and they can continue on but again parents are so stressed about how much their kids are eating and the variety they're eating and yes and so if it's about the weight then they don't have to like really dig deep and go okay now I've got to present five billion different food choices it's like okay what's one of their preferred food what's some of their preferred foods that maybe are the slightly healthier choices yes great excellent you can just present those with a little bit of variety at the same time. So I just liked, yeah, I liked it that the research wasn't saying you have to just keep on going, keep on giving them new stuff, keep on giving them new stuff. Yes, that, yes. Yeah, Slow and steady wins better. the race. Yeah, yes. that's right. Yes. And hopefully those kids where weight is an issue and for most of the kids that I've worked with who have had sensory food aversions, families are looking for weight gain because kids have got a restricted diet hopefully those families are linked in with a dietitian and most of the times a dietitian is able to give them strategies for caloric loading as well you know so how do you increase calories based on their preferred foods yes yes that's exactly it and it seems that their coding system like we both found that quite interesting and it was that it was quite reliable from an inter-rater reliability. So it would actually be really interesting to get those researchers or get researchers because it's inter-rater reliable. So yep. it doesn't matter who does it, yep. uh, to view videos of kids that don't fit into having sensory food disorders yep. um, and seeing what the differences are. It could even be at like blind. Yeah. And I think, you know, looking at kids who, you know, kind of don't identify as having any sort of food aversions, kids that have kind of a moderate variety, I wouldn't say, well, like we saw in the background research, 50% of kids um, at that age do present with some selective eating. So I wouldn't say good variety, I would say a moderate variety. It would be interesting to compare that. I'd love to see the difference in mealtime length. I'd also love to see the difference in caregiver strategies because I imagine potentially there are less there's less coercion with a child who, um, you know, instinctively is trying targeted foods. You would imagine that we would see different caregiver strategies in that instance where where a child is doing that on their own. And I thought it was interesting as well, like they were able to draw, we've talked about it, but those correlations between mealtime duration and the number of bites and the type of exploration. So 
yeah, whether the, yep. the bites are preferred or non-preferred and whether they touched or licked or whatever, but they couldn't come with up with many conclusions about caregiver strategies. No, no, that's um, okay. And I think, yeah, and I think that's okay. And I think it's good when a study doesn't come up with some things because then, you know, they're not trying to make it, every piece fit into a nice thing. They're yep. just actually reporting on yep. the data. I am going to read word for word one of the statements. The results reported are correlational and do not support causal influence. They should be used to generate hypotheses and inform the design of future clinical trials. But so that's research lingo, yep. Yep. but I think they should be used to generate hypothesis and inform design of therapy input. Yeah. So they can't be the only basis of therapy input regarding fe feeding, but I do think there was some some really good things like the time and the exposure and yes. number of bites that I think you can actually inform your therapy input. Yeah, great. Yep. In terms of changing our practice moving forward, for me personally, I love parent coaching and I mm. love getting parents to reflect on their own practice. So I just, I like the idea of maybe not necessarily using the assessment tool or the coding system per se, but I like the way that they broke down what we're looking at so that if parents did want to video a mealtime or did want to talk to you about a mealtime in more detail, then you've got a bit of a structure there in order to guide that discussion. And like you said, Mim, some of the guidelines they give around times and number of bites and the number of you know, bites of targeted foods versus preferred foods, all of those things are really helpful to talk to parents about. As you say, Mim, parents want to know, is my child normal? And when they're coming to feeding therapy, they're already thinking my child's not normal, we're having difficulties at meal times, but to be able to give them some figures around, mm. you know, this group of children with sensory food aversions does this. It's a small study. Again, it's difficult to generalise, but I think having those figures in the back of your head can be comforting to some parents and reassuring to some parents. So I guess for me, it gives me a bit of a framework in my clinical practice of things to talk about in relation to meal times and maybe things to either observe directly via a video or indirectly via a really good history yes. of meal times and feeding difficulties. Like if a parent came and to me and they were concerned about their feeding, then I really liked even just the de definition of a sensory food aversion or sensory food disorder. So. Yep looking at the, do they avoid it because of the characteristics? Do they refuse new foods completely, but they eat the preferred food without dis difficulties? And again, I know I'm harping on about it, but is yep. there nutritional deficiency or the oral motor delay? And yeah, like that ability to chew and sw swallow food. Yes. And obviously we can't, we've talked about that. We can't diagnose the nutritional deficiency or oral motor delay, but they may come with that information. Yep. It gives us a little bit of a guide. Yep. And then if they don't fit that criteria completely, again, sometimes it is just that reassurance yep. because 58% grow out of, at this age, grow out of that. Yep. But that doesn't mean you go, oh, what are you talking about? That's Should right. right. Yep. You can still give them that, have structured meal times. 
absolutely the length of the meal times yeah absolutely and things like that yeah and then if if weight is a problem then you can reassure them like don't worry so much about the variety get on top of the weight yes put a bit of variety in there and again if if they're coming to you for the first time and there's a weight concern always refer back to a gp or dietitian yes. of course yeah but just again taking that weight off of the families yeah and then absolutely if, if we're getting all that criteria then yeah it is that guidance on length of meal times encouraging that touching exploring exactly as you say whether that's during meal time or outside of and that modeling and exposure we're going to be having a live session with pippa soon but pippa's going to be talking about an article that she's chosen and we've reviewed that article and you can listen to that on the podcast she's also going to be we're also going to be using the chance to ask pippa some other clinical questions and i guess for me when i think about this article i'm wanting to know how she gets information about real um, meal behaviors does she use video does she use just a detailed history does she get families to fill out a questionnaire what does that look like in clinical practice and I guess for me I also want to know how does she recommend that families explore non-preferred foods does she recommend that that happens during a meal time where play is incorporated or does she recommend that it happens outside of a meal time sometime during messy play so I guess for me those are probably the two main questions that are triggered from this article so hopefully we'll be able to get Pippa to answer those and if you've got questions from the article or generally about feeding pop them into our email what's our email Sarah it's research and reality at exceptional-kids.net and you can also place them on the, we've got a Facebook page and yep. you can put those questions there. You'll hear at the end some ways. We have a Facebook page and a Facebook group. And so the group is a bit more interactive and there's ways to join that Facebook group as well. I think that's it. I think that was. It was yeah. great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was a really in-depth article. I thought it was going to be a tricky one for us to kind of describe because it is a little bit research focused, but actually there's quite a lot of take-homes. It's time for our Ask a New section where we ask Dr. Anu Bopti from Monash University a research question to generally expand our knowledge. So we're back with our Ask Anu section. So welcome back, Anu. Hi, Mim. <laughs> we talked about the differences between qualitative and quantitative research, just sort of as a general question. And now it would be really great to just talk about some of the common designs that fall under quantitative and qualitative. I know you can have the mixed methodology as we talked about last time, uh, but it's sometimes good just to even hear some of the phrases and hear some of the definitions of those. So we'll start with quantitative mm -hmm. and we'll talk about quantitative design methods. So there are four or five types of really common designs. The descriptive study, so we are understanding the sample. Then there can be a correlational study. Is there an association or a relationship between? So that's a correlation. It doesn't mean that it causes that. Correlation is different from causation. And we can understand that easily with medical studies. Say, for example, COVID vaccines. Yes, good one. <laughs> yeah, we want to know that they, they actually work, right? So then, so that one will be an experimental research. But if we want to know whether people who have, this is just random, people who have type A plus positive blood, do are they more at a risk of developing COVID? Then that becomes a relationship study. It's not that all the people who have A, a plus are 
going to get COVID. But if they do a relation, correlation study, which they've done heaps of those during COVID, they've said, you know, if you have a heart problem, if you have yes. a lung disorder, if you have respiration, then you have you are at a higher risk. So those are all correlation studies. So that means if you do have a respiratory issues, you are more susceptible to have severe symptoms of COVID. So they probably, that was quantitative. That was clearly not saying that, yes, just because you have asthma means you will get COVID of this particular, because there's so many who had asthma and did not get very severe symptoms. So they are called correlation studies, like smoking causes cancer is now confirmed that it's not correlational, but it is the cause of cancer. Yep. So, so things like that. And then we have our experimental studies. So experimental studies is, does this intervention work? Does the COVID vaccine work? So they are just conducting. So you can conduct experiments very differently and they are what determine the level of rigor in a quantitative study. So if you do the highest level is a gold standard is your RCT or randomized control trial, where you have a control group and you have an experimental group and you expose both the groups to similar, very same, as same as you can to that exposure to the interventions. So you keep the setting the same, the age the same. So you match your participants to the best that you can. And you have blinded reviewers. You have all these things you have to manage to make it highly rigorous. So that would be experimental design. So under quantitative, like obviously there's lots of designs out there, but you said four of the main ones are correlational, causational. Yes. Experimental. Yep. Was there a four? Descriptive, the first one. Descriptive. Okay, the first one. Giving you a sample of, you know, people, like telling you, how many people in Australia were born in India, for example? So that's mm-hmm. a descriptional study, but it's it's quantitative, but they'll have because to Because you can it. measure, you can take yeah, a measure, yeah, you yeah, can yeah, say yeah, this yeah. many, that many. Okay, yeah. so they're four common quantitative. They're most common ones, but there are heaps others, but let's just go mm. with them. And I think, I think, and hopefully over the time in our Ask a New section, we'll be able to <laughs> delve into some of those some more. So that's excellent on some of the quantitative. As you said, there's always going to be more. And as we go through the articles, we will discover some of those different types as well. Uh, And then what about qualitative? What are some of the different designs, common designs in qualitative research? So in qualitative research, it's not as clear cut as quantitative, but to perform qualitative research, you, you must choose at least one type of design that fits your topic. And it is, it is not uncommon to use a variety of, you know, like one or two different approaches. The common things that people are very much aware of are phenomenological designs. So that is, I can never say that word, but everyone well. finds I think everyone finds it a bit tricky, but it is actually, um, it's a wide ranging form of study where the researcher looks to gather information that explains how individuals experience a phenomenon. That model helps them recognize that there's not one single, single reality, like there could be several things or several experiences that people are experiencing differently, but then that, that um, you know, guiding that phenomenon, for example. Yep. So it is like describes the point of view of your participants. So, so the researcher still has to derive the meaning from that, but it it's actually quite a beautiful method to study a range of perspectives that, so a theory around any issue that we're working on. So a social issue or a human issue or a, you know, animal issues. So the theory actually helps not only to identify the problem, but defines how people deal with those problems. So it could go to any level. So you really go deeply into um, 
into the the participants' experiences, lived experiences. And so the research, initial research question progress, it keeps getting reformed. So it's it's a real hard one to do and takes a lot of time, but it is really worth it at the end. Mm. So in that one, it keeps uh, emerging, things keep emerging, you know, and it's really a nice way of understanding phenomenons as well, but also the theory that are, that are grounded in, in people's experiences. Then we have ethnography, which is a study of a specific group or a culture or a set of people. So researchers in this study will often immerse themselves into the culture that they're researching. So these, these are the ones that we use a lot. So we use, for example, things when we do and we study the impact of, say, feeding difficulties is because this segment, next segment yes. is all on feeding. Let's say if you wanted to understand what are the parents' perspectives of how they feel when they when the child doesn't eat, you know, mm. something like that. Then, because uh, then that's going to guide, or you want to find out, but you've got this wonderful intervention that works, but you don't know whether, you know, what is the best way of delivering it. So what you'll do is you'll say, I want to really interview the parents to see, or the caregivers to find out what works. And I want this beautiful intervention to work, but do they have time for it? When will they do it? So what you'll do is you'll design an interview study or a focus group, or you might run focus groups with parents and ask them these questions. Like, you know, what are, what time of the day is the best? How long can you do it? And so things like that, but also you'll study their perspective. And, and from that, you will come up with, looks like they are really stressed at this time or that time, or, you know, you'll come up with something. So those are case study designs where you might use interviews or you might use focus groups, and then you will transcribe the data that they, they say so you will do everything that they've said you'll record it in some way and then you'll do some coding and some themes and come up with here is my beautiful intervention and this is how the parents wanted so you can see how two things are they're very necessary as we move ahead Mm. And so you're saying that the case study is usually the most common one we'll come across in occupational therapy research, but ethnography, grounded theory, and phenomenological approaches. Oh, my <laughs> God, I can't even say it. No, um, yeah, are some yeah. of the other common ones. No, they, yes, OTs use that a lot. I have colleagues who are just experts in those areas, yep. and uh, they do really some of those things that come out, the theories and, and um, na narrative roots things that come out at the end of those studies is quite amazing to understand the just the understanding the human perspective I, I find it very fascinating so yes no we do do a lot of that I'm just saying in terms of this the what we are discussing you will see a lot of case study yes. kind of you, know, you interview a group of people and you've got your clear question that you're not spending a lot of time finding theory so that's when you will see that a lot yeah no that's excellent I think it's just good because again just being even a number of years down the track into my career. Uh, yeah. It's just really being good to be reminded of those different types of studies. And exactly as you say, we have not extensively covered all types of studies in quantitative or in qualitative, but I'm just hoping that for our listeners going ahead, they might be able to latch onto some of those terms. But yeah. great to talk to you again, and we will see you next time. And I think we're, look, we're talking about impact factors next time. Okay, great. Thanks, Mim. Okay, bye. We acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respect to their elders past and present and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples today.
We're excited to announce the date of our first live podcast in which you can join us. This will involve us interviewing Pippa Van Wyk, a paediatric occupational therapist, and she has extensive experience and passion in the area of feeding, and she picked one of our research articles this term. Pippa will share insights into her work as a feeding therapist and help us understand how her article of choice has shaped her clinical work. We're holding the podcast recording on Wednesday, the 7th of September, 2022, at 8 p.m. Brisbane time and we'd love you to submit your clinical questions beforehand so that we can send them on to Pippa and you can do that by emailing us at researchandreality at exceptional-kids.net so that's research and reality at exceptional-kids.net and you will have the opportunity to ask questions on the night but if you can send the questions that means people will be able to prepare and answer those questions more thoroughly. So remember that this is a complimentary invitation for our listeners out there who have listened and supported us for the first term of our podcast. So thank you and tell others about the opportunity. If you can't make it on that particular evening, a recording will be released on the podcast. So don't worry, you will not miss out. Details of signing up for that are available in our show notes and on both our Facebook page and Facebook group. Our second announcement is that Pippa Van Wyk and her colleague, speech pathologist Carly Betts, are holding a two-day introduction to feeding basics assessment and intervention workshop on Friday the 2nd of September and Saturday the 3rd of September. Again, a link to that workshop is available on our show notes and through our Facebook page and group. I know it's very short notice, so get in there because that will be a great opportunity if you live in Brisbane. Unfortunately, it's based in Brisbane. We love providing this podcast to you free to enable you to put great research into reality for your families. We would love to engage with our listeners more and if possible, have you support our podcast. There's a number of ways you can do this. One, tell your friends and colleagues about us. We are aimed at occupational therapists, but some of our topics are certainly relevant for other professions as well. Two, rate and review us on your podcast app. This helps others find the podcast. Three, email us if you like at researchandreality, that's R-E-S-E-A-R-C-H-A-N-D-R-E-A-L-I-T-Y at exceptional-kids.net. Check out our Facebook page where you'll be kept up to date with all our news www.facebook.com slash research and reality OT. That's research and reality OT. You can also become a Patreon supporter from as little as a dollar a month. This podcast takes time, so if you'd like to support us, you can. When you support us through Patreon, you get extra perks as well. For a dollar a month, you get to be a research rookie and get access to our closed Facebook group. It's different from the page as the group allows you to interact with ourselves and each other to share about articles that we review and much more. For $10 a month, you get to be a research roadie and you get access to the closed Facebook group, get a blank critique form and a copy of the article in advance, if copyright permits, and a transcript of our podcast so you don't have to frantically take notes while listening. You'll also get access to our bonus episode each term where we interview an expert in that term's topic who has picked one of the articles. And for $15 a month, you are a research rock star and you get the benefits of the research rookie and research roadie, but you don't just get a recording of the bonus episode. You get to be part of it live and pose your questions to our expert in real time. You can sign up through Patreon by going to patreon.com slash researchandrealityot.com. That's researchandrealityot.com. So there's heaps of ways to get involved, support us and engage with the Research and Reality podcast more. 
As our first supporters, we'd like to thank you for listening and give you the Research Rockstar perks for free. Just email us your details and you'll get all the Research Rockstar perks for free the rest of this year, that's 2022, including being part of our bonus episode on the OT role in feeding therapy with Pippa Van White. After this term, though, we'll be making the Facebook group a closed group, so get in quick. And feel free to still financially support us via Patreon for the rest of this year if you wish.